0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: You can't go the extra mile until you first traverse the essential mile, right? So if if, if you want to travel 100 miles, you still have to traverse the first mile. You still have to walk the first block. So I don't see the idea of starting small as something that is mutually exclusive with going big. In fact, I see it the other way around. The people who get stuck in life are not the people who start small. The people who get stuck in life are the people who don't start at all because they're too busy condemning themselves for not being able to do the ideal version on day one.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Yeah. So I came across your story because somebody uh, on your team wrote in uh, about uh, this book that you guys wrote, Freedom Without Permission, which uh, I thought was really interesting. But I think your your personal story resonated with me a lot as well. You know, people always ask me, how do I choose? And I'm like, well, something about that person makes me curious. I don't know, always know how to identify what it was, but something about it was like, oh yeah, I, I definitely want to have this conversation. But before we get into uh, all of the work that you do, mm-hmm. um, I want to start asking, where did the, in the world did you grow up and what impact did where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career?
1: Sure. So I grew up in Chicago, Illinois, and I am the son of a pastor. And so perhaps mm-hmm. Uh, a bigger memory in my mind when I think of childhood is is less the city of Chicago and more the, the setting that was the church. You know, we, mm-hmm. we had a, a relatively large church of a few hundred people, and it, it was like an extended family of mine. You know, every older person was like an uncle or an aunt or a, or a mentor. Uh, every, every peer was like a big brother or a big sister uh, or like a cousin. And I grew up in a family environment that was centered around working out the ideals of faith-based living within the context of everyday life. And so I grew up listening to a lot of people talk about what it means to live a life of, of faith, hope, and love, um, not just on a Sunday when you go to church yeah. service and it's easy to to behave that way. But when you go to school, when you go to work and when you're dealing with irritating people, when you're dealing with obstacles and so forth. And so that environment really shaped many aspects of of what I prioritize and 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 what my sense of purpose was. Because if there was one thing I took away from my childhood, it it was the conviction that how you see reality is a matter of life and death, that every aspect mm-hmm. of what you would call quality of life. Boils down to the little choices that you make to cultivate a a quality of consciousness that that is conducive mm-hmm. to things like um personal power or 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 peace or you know the other you know the the other the other whatever labels we use to to talk about a flourishing life, and so I've yeah. always been intensely interested in in exploring the boundaries of how much we can influence as human beings. The way we perceive and process the data of experience uh, towards the end of living as fully and freely as possible. Mm, wow. So, as the son of a pastor, mm-hmm. uh, I wonder.
0: Are there aspects of it that are restrictive to the point where you know certain things are bas- basically just considered sins? Like how much of, of a, a sort of God fearing mindset did uh, you know growing up as the son of a pastor instill into, into you? And then how do you figure out where the sort of boundaries are of okay, this is too restrictive, and you know I need to go out and you know kind of become an, a, a person of my own also, which may not fall within the boundaries of what your dad approved of?
1: Yeah, you know, so everyone has their own. Experience of, of of religion, and I've I've certainly heard my share of stories about people who may have grown up in the church and uh, may have been the the sons and daughters of clergy, and 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 I've heard some 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 stories that that were quite disappointing, you know. Um, and I'm fortunate enough, I'm I'm blessed enough, if you will, to have had a a relatively positive experience. Uh, not a naive, idealistic experience, but a very positive one. My, my parents were not legalistic parents. Um, they focused more on God consciousness rather than sin management. Um, they focused uh-huh. more, you know, one of the earliest lessons I learned about the biblical concept of sin, for instance, is that the word sin means to miss the mark. You know, uh, it doesn't mean smoking a cigarette. It doesn't mean mm. drinking a beer. It means to miss the point of life. It means to be a person who overlooks the most significant effect, the most significant fact about life, and that is you have the power to impact the world, that you are not just here to breathe up the universe's air and to take up space, but that you're actually here to make your presence felt, to live purposefully and and my father and my mother emphasize that aspect of the faith more than anything, so for us. Faith was a very inspiring thing. I I even remember my father saying once, he says, even if there is no hell, I will still live the faith-filled life. And what he meant by that was his lifestyle wasn't driven by fear. It wasn't driven by the idea that one day he's going to die and have to answer to an angry God. But his life was driven by the sense of inspiration that comes from saying, that i am unique that i am here for a purpose and that i have something to offer to the world and that the greatest source of fulfillment comes in discovering what that is and living that out so that's that's the the sort of context that that i came from if if i can share a um i i had i, I did not anticipate going into the bible or things like that but i can share a bible story that i heard as a child that had a really big impact on 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 my life, my faith, and it perfectly captures the way that I was raised. So there's a story in the Bible of a prophet, Elijah, and there is a king that is the enemy of Elijah's nation. And and, and the king is constantly plotting together with his military to overthrow Elijah's nation. And because Elijah is a prophet, he is able to anticipate the the king's plans beforehand and inform the military of his own nation. And one day the, 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 the king of the, the enemy nation gets so angry by this that, that, he, that he brings all of his men together. And he says, there must be a spy among us because every time I come up with the plan, it leaks and they find out about it. They know exactly what we're gonna do ahead of time. And one of his men said, no, it's, it's not a spy. It's the prophet Elijah. He, he has the gift of seeing and he's able to hear the very things that you whisper in your bed chambers. And so the king then says, okay, here's what we got to do. We got to kill Elijah. And so he sends his army after Elijah and um, Elijah's servant sees the army approaching their home and he runs and gets Elijah and he's afraid as anybody would be in this situation. And he says, Elijah, there are men that are coming to kill us. And Elijah looks and he says, greater is the number of those who are with us than the number of those who are with them. And Gehazi's confused by this. And at that moment, Elijah says a prayer for Gehazi. And he says, open his eyes that he might see. And at that moment, Elijah's servant Gehazi sees an army of angels encamped about the military men that are coming for them. And in that moment, his fear subsides and his heart is filled with faith and with courage. Now, I don't care if you accept that story as being literally true or a metaphorical, but there's a very profound message there. Elijah had faith, not because of a sense of religious duty. He had faith because the way he perceived reality made it impossible for him to react to his challenges in any other way other than through courage. And his servant Gehazi was filled with fear, not because he was trying to be a jerk, not because he wasn't working hard enough. But because the way he saw reality made it impossible for him to feel anything other than fear. And those are two fundamentally different ways of living. We can approach life by way of faith or by way of fear. We can be driven by faith or driven by fear. And what what determines that is the way we see reality. If we see reality as one that is fundamentally against us, opposed to us, we live a fear based life. When we see reality as one where There are greater possibilities than the things that we are conditioned to believe. There are greater possibilities than what might be obvious. There are greater possibilities than the status quo. We are filled with the kind of hope and inspiration that characterizes the entrepreneurs and the artists and the innovators who bring new possibilities into existence. So for me, faith is not about trying to go around making people feel guilty for how many sins they're committing. Nor is faith about me trying to count how many times I made a mistake on a given day. Nor is it about going to church and checking things off my list so that I can feel like I've been a good boy for attending Sunday school or showing up to mass on time. Faith is about living with a sense of possibility. Faith is about recognizing that there is always more to reality than that which strikes me as obvious. And when you live with that kind of conviction, what else can you be other than a creator? And is that not the message of the Bible to be, to be in the image and likeness of the creator, to be creators ourselves? That's what faith mm. is to me. That's what I was taught growing up. Wow,
0: um, amazing! So I, I wonder—you uh, know—you mentioned about the things that we're conditioned to believe, and I wonder about the time that you grew up in and the area you grew up in, uh, particularly as an African American. Mm-hmm. What are the things that people are conditioned to believe, or what were you conditioned to believe about race, about culture, about background, about status, and what were the people in your neighborhood where you grew up conditioned to believe?
1: Yeah, man. So you know, I kind of have an interesting background when it when it comes to race. So. I grew up in Chicago, Illinois, and uh, lived in an all-Black neighborhood, attended an all-Black church, and the only white people that I saw were people on television for the most part. I mean, there was an occasional school teacher who was white, but definitely no white people in my neighborhood. But very early on, around the age of 13, my, my family and I moved to the western suburbs, a small town in, um, in Illinois called Westchester, and everything flip-flopped. I went from not seeing any white people unless I turned on the television to being around mostly white people. All my classmates were white. Everyone in my neighborhood was white. I think there was one other black kid, uh, not in my family, one other black kid at, at the school. And, and we still had church services throughout the week that we go through where I would get my my weekly dosage of, of black folks. But um, it, it was kind of a culture shock experience for me, man. And This happened, you know, when I was in, you know, about like the sixth grade, and that was a really tough period of my life because at that time I really didn't have much of a basis for seeing things through the lens of race. Um, But I was thrust into a situation where, at a very early age, I was forced to confront all sorts of racial issues that many people my age or many people who have the luxury of only growing up in one demographic don't have to wrestle with until later on in life. So for instance, when you're, when you're 13, 14 years old, the hormones start kicking in as a young boy and yeah. you experience what it's <laughs> like to be attracted to people for the first time, right? So yeah. for me, unlike the typical teenage boy, I didn't just get to experience attraction as a purely romantic thing where, oh, I just like that girl. I experienced it as a very mm-hmm. complicated thing. Like, oh, I like that girl, but she's a different race than me. Is that okay? Is that good? Is that yeah. bad? Would anybody else have an opinion about that? Is that okay for me to talk about? Do I need to mm-hmm. tell my my parents that I like her? Would I need to have a conversation yeah. with her parents about it if I were to date her? You know it, it, and so it was all very complicated for me, and i I also had a number of experiences where my family was the first black neighborhood, the first black family in that neighborhood. And there were a number of challenges just adjusting to that as well. And I mean, I, I could probably do an entire podcast just on race and my experiences coming up as a black man who grew up in a black neighborhood, but then moved in, in the beginning of his teenage years to a white neighborhood. Um, but but I'm, I'm very grateful for that change because it helped me develop a kind of nuanced experience based perspective. Um, That sort of purified me of, of many stereotypes that people have on both sides of the discussion at a very early stage in life, you know? So we know a lot of you have been listening to us for years, and
0: it means the world to us. What we do here at The Unmistakable Creative wouldn't be possible without the support of our listeners. If the podcast has been valuable to you, one of the best ways you can support us is to subscribe to Unmistakable Creative Prime, which gives you access to transcripts, all of our courses, monthly coaching calls, live chats with our guests, and an incredible community of creatives. And it costs less than you spend on a cup of coffee every month. For the school teachers and people in our education system, Prime is completely free to help you with this transition to teaching online. We've packed it with a ton of value and actionable content, and we hope you'll check it out. Just go to unmistakablecreative.com slash prime to learn more. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash prime. The reason I, yeah, I brought it up, we had uh, a woman named Desiree Attaway here. We we're talking about the sort of, you know, intersections of race, culture mm-hmm. and class and gender. And she was also a black woman. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions I'd asked her is, is, you know, what is it really like to be a black woman in America? Obviously, I don't know that because I'm Indian. Because sure. um, she know what it's like to be an Indian person in America. So <clears throat> I wonder, you know, from your perspective, obviously, for many of us, we see narratives that are shaped through through media, through popular culture, through other things. Um what do you think it is that people don't know uh about what it is like to be a black person in America uh, particularly a black male mm. or what misperceptions do you think they have
1: Oh man um many but I you know w- one thing I would say about about black men is that um black men are among the most entrepreneurial creative and artistic you know uh people on this planet and because many of the systems we are thrust into are ones that uh, are not optimized for us uh, or Mm -hmm. they're systems where we don't always fit in. Uh, Black men are often disregarded as just being, you know, uh, a bunch of lawless uh, criminal people who, um, who are just, you know, who, who, who don't, who don't know how to live orderly lives or don't care to live orderly lives that, that, that were uncouth and that were were uncontrollable, that were wild. Um, and I think I think that's a misunderstanding. I, I think there's something in the spirit of black men that that that, that, that is made to be nonconformist, uh, that that is made to be a rebel in the most awesome of ways. And I I think, you know, when we when we look at criminal statistics for instance and and we make generalized observations about black men, I think, I, I, think, I think it's easy to look at that on the surface and say, ah, yeah, l- look at these stereotypes over here. Look at these guys just being wild and violent and dealing drugs. And what I see as I see creators with an immense amount of entrepreneurial potential, but who have not yet discovered or, or, or been taught of a context where they're optimized to thrive. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that's something, um, you know, that th- that's not typically regarded. An- another thing too, man, is that every black man I know loves his children. And, you know, there, there, there's kind of like this stereotype of, you know, black men mm-hmm. like to, um, they don't take care of their children. Black men just knock people mm-hmm. up and then they run in the opposite direction. You know, you've got the, you know, um, yeah, I, I would I would say that that that's another stereotype that that bothers me. That's based on misunderstanding. I I think the the when you look at some of the political issues, the economic issues surrounding things like child support and what happens when people um, are, are late on payments or fail to pay, uh, the the self defeating nature of the system uh, m- makes it impossible for a lot of the black men who who truly do love for the, love their families and want to provide for their families. Uh, makes it very difficult yeah. for them to do that you know um so i think that's just another area where if i'm on topic if we're talking about stereotypes of black men that i uh, that i think are untrue or things about black men that aren't quite known yeah
0: it's, it's interesting because I've, I've had people from every ethnicity and, and walk of life here. And, you know, in the last few weeks, I got to talk to a guy named Chris Wolfson, yep. who who basically came out of a life sentence, wrote this brilliant book called, you know, uh, My Master Plan. Yep. And I think one of the things that struck me so much about that conversation was that the, the role that the environment that he was in played in putting him where he was at. And he said, you know, this is a system that is set up for us to actually have way like it puts us way more at a disadvantage than the average person in a lot of ways because of this Context, and so I I wonder. You know, you had mentioned that they need a new. Like nobody showed them a better context. So, one, how do you create that context? More importantly, like, what is it that causes the the people who do transcend that uh, to to come out of it? Because you know, I mean, I know from having seen even you know even when you look at documentaries about the favelas in Brazil, they often say these kids only see two paths: it's either become a professional soccer player or. Become a drug dealer, and I feel like that's often a, a similar narrative that's passed on to to young black kids in, in very you know low income communities here in the United States. Correct me if I'm wrong, by the way. I'm just making that assumption. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um,
0: and so I wonder, you know, like one, why is it that some people transcend that, and how do you how do you undo this cycle that is created by a system that was not even put there uh, by these people who are trapped in the cycle?
1: yeah so th- there are there are two grounds upon which this battle has to be fought. Um, one is the you could argue the um the political battle or, or or maybe the systemic battle would 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 perhaps be a better word um and then the other is the individual battle. so when I talk about the political or systemic battle, what I mean is making efforts to actually alter systems that disproportionately uh disadvantage certain people, you know. So I think taking a look, for instance, at the war on drugs, I think the war on drugs has done far more damage to black communities than drugs themselves. Um yeah. if you want to talk about the problem of drugs in black communities, um drug imprisonment, drug-related imprisonment for for nonviolent offenses and the way it robs people of the potential to have a career uh, the way it robs people of the ability to have an opportunity um is far more damaging than things like drug addiction you know um the, the The statistics are pretty outrageous when you look at for instance the uh the number of people who are are arrested and imprisoned for things like uh marijuana possession things along those lines mm-hmm. uh, ad- additionally there are there are problems in education if you look at the The public schooling system and the way schools are financed, the way teachers are incentivized to go into certain neighborhoods to teach, the quality of education that people are getting in the compulsory school system, I think there are problems there that are worth looking at. One of the reasons why I'm so passionate about education is because I do believe that education is the answer to every problem, but I completely disagree with the status quo assumption that education is to be equated with school. That that right. education is a broader category into which school fits, but this is not something that most young black people are getting the chance to really hear. Right, most black people are taught that uh, in order to be successful, you need an education. In order to get an education, you need to be in school. And if you are not succeeding in the way that you need to succeed in order to be a good student, then something is wrong with you, and you're doomed to failure unless you can conform to that system. And I I don't think that system is optimized for for the entrepreneurial spirit at all. And and so you have a number of people who are leaving the school system feeling like I'm a dropout loser or like I don't have a future or I'm not very smart because they have been conditioned to think in accordance with a very narrow definition of what it means to be smart, what it means to be educated, what it means to be a good person, you know? But I mean, th- there are a number of different issues like that. But for me, I would say the biggest on a systemic level be, would be the war on drugs and, and education. But on an individual level, because let, let's bring it here too, because I, I'm not just interested in creating the kind of society in which everyone can live freely. I'm also interested in creating the kind of person who can figure out a way to live freely in any kind of society. And that's an equally important battle to me, and I think that's the one battle that we as individuals have the most control in. No matter who you are, what demographic you are part of, or where you're from, it is inevitable that you will experience unfair, unjust circumstances. You will experience disadvantages. Nature is itself, you know, inherently unfair. Um, and that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean we should disregard or ignore um, political injustice. But I think the first step to taking charge of your life is to realize that whatever, whatever positive changes come about in your life, they are most likely to come from you deciding that regardless of what other people are going to do, you are going to do the best that you can to use the tools and resources around you to become a better version of yourself. At the end of the day, even if everyone else does have an obligation to help you, to support you, or do right by you, the responsibility to create the results that matter most to you, they, they fall up on you. Because regardless of what other people should do, we don't live in the universe yeah. that we should live in right and so you can't prepare for the world that you think you should live in you've got to start with the world that you actually live in and you've got to make the best of that world so in the work that i do on the education front on the nonprofit front on the entrepreneurial front focuses a lot on equipping people with uh, the conceptual tools and the the hard skills they need to take charge of their lives individually so that they can succeed in spite of the world's unfairness because that that is one thing that all, that all great achievers have in common um They have some help, they have some support, but they also have the creativity and resolve to figure out ways to get ahead in life in spite of the fact that there's unfairness and that there are disadvantages. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that <clears throat> one thing that has been really interesting for me, just as, as I've, I've listened to you talk, is this whole is about this whole idea of reality and the boundaries of it, particularly because we're having a conference called The Architects of Reality in, in April of 2020. So I've been thinking about this whole idea of the fact that a person's reality is malleable. But the problem is we start to see reality only as malleable when it happens in these huge ways. And and to in my mind, I'm like, the moment you make one small change to your behavior, you've just proved to your. Self that reality is malleable. So <clears throat> I, I wonder why you think that some people see reality as fixed, and others actually see it as malleable.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean that, that that's a tough one. Uh, Martin Seligman has done a lot of interesting research on this, and uh, Daniel Gilbert as well, uh, out of Harvard University, and you know, the, the work that they've done on positive psychology, where they've identified a number of different trends in, in how, people, how people think when they, when they function in a more pessimistic way versus those who function in a more optimistic way. So for instance, um, people who tend to be optimistic tend to use temporal language, like I screwed up, which refers to a past event versus I am a screw up, which is, which is sort of like tenseless and which is about my state of being rather than my circumstances. And so they've done a lot of interesting research to kind of distinguish, you know, what separates one group who's more likely to achieve from groups that are less likely to achieve. But how people come to be that way, I I think it's a very complex subject that, you know, I don't claim to be an expert in. I think there are a um, a lot of different explanations, biological, psychological, sociological. What I like to focus on is, Meeting people where they are and saying, Hey, yeah. regardless of the background that molded you and shaped you into the being that you are today, how can we build on the very best that is within you to help you get to where you want to be? You know, I remember Zig Ziglar told the story of how he, someone gave him directions to a party and mm. he followed the directions and he, he felt like he was getting turned around. He didn't know where he was. And so this was in the age prior to GPS. And so he pulls over and he goes to a gas station and, and he shows them the directions and they say, oh no, that's, that's all wrong. And they pull out a map and they said, you actually got to go down this street and then you make a left at this street, you go down a few miles and you'll be right there. And he says he got back in his car and he went the way that the man with the map told him to go and he got there on time. Now here's the question. Did he? Was it his fault that he got lost? No, it wasn't his fault that he got lost. Somebody gave him a bad map. Somebody gave him a bad set of instructions. Well, why did they do that? You know, were they maliciously trying to deceive him? Were they sincerely mistaken? I mean, who knows? Who knows how much of that information we can know? But here's what matters what matters is that he has the opportunity in the present to live according to a different map. And what's he going to do with that opportunity? And in the work that I do with people, I don't disregard or dismiss the past, but I don't hold myself hostage to any kind of prerequisite that says I got to have the right theory about what happened in your past in order to help you figure out how you're going to what you need to do in order to create the future that you want. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it totally does. Yeah, you know, but uh, one of, one of the things I I try to do. Um, you know, in, in my effort, I, I like to take an entrepreneurial approach to changing the world, and, and this is what I what I preach. I believe in entrepreneurship as a theory of social change. I believe that I believe that politics is a real and influential force in our world, but I also believe that it is it is the one realm where we actually have the least amount of power to affect things on a day to day level. That doesn't mean you should disregard it but it does mean you should not limit yourself to political solutions. And so I I believe in thinking critically and creatively about what you can do as an individual in order to help bring about solutions to the problems that exist in our world without waiting for the next opportunity to vote. I believe in doing things that can work even when people I don't like are in office. I don't believe in adopting a philosophy of life that says, if the wrong guy or the wrong person gets into office, well, now we're all screwed and there's nothing that we can do except wait for the next political savior to come along and, and, and help us out. I believe that 365 days a year, we can cast our votes in the marketplace um, through the way we treat people, through the way we treat ourselves, through the way that we develop our potential, through the projects that we create and so forth. So how I'm doing that is you know in the work that I do with praxis, I am creating options in the marketplace through my business that gives people that are looking for uh, an approach to to living a successful life and building their careers, I'm giving them something that the school system doesn't offer. I'm giving them an option that exists alongside the status quo. So for those people who are dropouts and opt outs who say the traditional approach to schooling doesn't work for me. Traditional higher education doesn't work for me. I don't belong in college. I'm not waiting for a politician to do something about that. I've created a business that allows me to take my philosophy and put it into action by creating real value for people who have problems that I have the ability to solve. Um, and I also do that on on the nonprofit side of things as well. I, I, I'm a director with the um, Foundation for Economic Education, and I do a lot of workshops where I go into inner cities, I go into urban areas, and I teach principles of of economic literacy, of entrepreneurship, of leadership, of character. And this is just another example of how I'm not waiting on a politician to figure it all out. I'm not. I'm not waiting on the final word to be said by psychologists about why, the, or sociologists about why the world's so screwed up. I'm. Doing what I can do with the brief life that I have here to make a difference, and that's how I work with people. I, I try to use my my gifts creatively to solve problems to the best of my ability and inspire others to do the same.
0: Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> As I'm hearing you talk about this, um, something's coming to my mind because I was reading this book about flow and sports this morning, and I've been you know, reading everything I can about what, flow. What, what, and, what you know, book one is of the if things I, can I ask. Talk about? Oh, but this isn't the Mahaley Chick me high one it's called Flow in yeah. Sports literally. Okay. It was written by him and Susan. Baxson, I I love it. There's a yeah, lot of- I, I love that book. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. great. It's almost as it's almost better than the original flow yep. book because it's easier to read. Um, but one of the things that struck me in that book is I was thinking about this morning and I was having a conversation with one of my my team members the other day about the fact that he's frustrated that we're not where we want to be where he wants to be. And so much of what they talk about in that book is focusing on today, right? Focusing on now in terms of, and I've seen how transformative it is that, you know, if you're only focused on today, like you can do extraordinary things today, but so often um, we're so focused on the future that today suffers as a result and we don't do shit because of it. And I wonder how you balance the ambition to accomplish future goals with the presence to actually, you know, do something worthwhile with your life today.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So um, I I just recently shot a video that I'll be releasing pretty soon um, from a a series I'm producing called Revolution of One. And the name of the video is called Non-Zero Days. And it's about this very concept. So my belief when it comes to personal change or ambition is that you can't go the extra mile until you first traverse the essential mile, right? So if if, if you want to travel 100 miles, you still have to traverse the first mile. You still have to walk the first block. So I don't see the idea of starting small as something that is mutually exclusive with going big. In fact, I see it the other way around. The people who get stuck in life are not the people who start small. The people who get stuck in life are the people who don't start at all because they're too busy condemning themselves for not being able to do the ideal version on day one. You know, um, James Clear has an excellent book called Atomic Habits where he delves into you know habit formation and this idea of incremental change. And one of the things he talks about is you have to focus on becoming the kind of person for whom it is easy and habitual to do that sort of thing, right? So instead of focusing on some gigantic goal, like I'm going to lose 20 pounds or I'm going to run a marathon, you want to make small investments in becoming the, the kind of person for whom it would be easy to do that. So maybe for you that starts with, just go to the gym every day. Maybe that starts with, yeah. well, how about you get outside and just walk for 10 minutes a day, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. you want to build momentum. People who achieve great things and who develop constructive habits and go on to you know uh, realize large ambitions are people who start small, they start with something that's feasible, They build momentum and then they allow the momentum to carry them forward. So I, I would say that is the way to the big stuff. It's starting with the little stuff and learning to respect it, right? Yeah,
0: well, it's, it's so funny you bring up momentum because uh, you know my, my one of my old mentors used to talk about this idea that you get into what he called momentum windows, and you know he said like if you play your cards right in a momentum window, he said you'll never be back at the same level again. He's mm-hmm. like that's Mark Zuckerberg when Facebook reaches a hundred thousand users. That's you know somebody mm-hmm. else when they've reached you know a hundred thousand readers. And I I think that the interesting thing about this to me, you know, all of this is is not news to me because I've read James's book, I've had him as a guest on the mm-hmm. show, but I've also done research for this for my own books and. I think that people underestimate the value of incremental progress because they don't realize that progress is a huge motivator, even if it's a small, you know, really minimal progress. The problem is they confuse progress and outcomes and they think it's the same. You know, it's kind of like, oh, my goal is get a book deal, but, you know, Instead, they don't say, okay, wait a minute, if I'm writing every single day, that's progress. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, If you start measuring your outcomes instead of your progress, then you'll feel like you're not making any progress.
1: Yeah, and, and so this is another advantage of actually starting small, because starting small not only builds momentum, but it builds self-esteem, because it allows you to accumulate mm-hmm. wins, small wins, along the way. So if you have a big goal like, yeah. hey, I want to write a book, then you don't get to feel any accomplishment until you write the book. So yeah. even if you do show up every day for thirty straight days and you write, you still feel like, well, I'm not there yet, right? Um, but when you have something like, okay, I'm 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 going to break this down into a series of smaller goals, and I'm going to say, you know, here's outcome number one, here's outcome number two, you don't have to wait until you complete the book in order to begin to feel successful, and that feeling of being yeah. successful that that kind of boosts your self-esteem and allows you to to mm-hmm. feel even more motivated. It's it's kind of like if you're driving from, you know, let's say Chicago to Cleveland. Well, for the majority of the trip, you are somewhere other than Cleveland. And so you can drive for 30 yeah. minutes and you're still not in Cleveland. You can drive for an hour, you're still not in Cleveland. You drive for 2 hours, you're still not in Cleveland and you can fool yourself right and say well hey you know i've been driving for 2 hours and i'm still not in cleveland but when we're driving we don't feel that way because we can see the visible markers of progress along the way we know that we're not in cleveland but we're 80 miles closer we're also not in chicago mm-hmm. we're a, we, you know we're, we're only yeah. 50 miles away and you have to be able to do the same thing with your with your goals otherwise you'll you'll feel like you're perpetually in a state of, I'm still not financially independent. I still don't have a book. I'm still not in shape.
0: Yeah. So one question around that, that I think uh, sort of uh, complements this. So one of the things that's interesting, I think, uh, particularly because we live in a world where our lives are so publicly on display is that that tends to also come with a great deal of comparison. You know, like I get to talk to remarkable people all day long and it took me a long time to get it in my head that, wait a minute, I'm basing my basis for comparison entirely on outliers. Mm-hmm. You know, like the people who've been here are like billionaires and New York Times bestselling authors. and And so that became my sort of Standard. It was like, oh, that's, you know, I'm a loser if I haven't done what they've done. And then and you overlook your own gifts in that process. But I wonder, you know, how do you how do you avoid that trap of comparison? Cause that also was, it was one of those things I saw in that flow book. It was like, oh, you should measure where you're at, not against other people, but against your personal goals. Mm, mm.
1: Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I think first, you know, y- you have to determine your goals based on internal factors like what actually thrills you. You know, um, I I I I often tell people follow your dreams, but make sure that it's your dream that you're actually following, mm-hmm. right? Because the the first stage where we get it wrong with all of the the external comparisons is that we allow our dreams to be formed from the outside. We look at what someone else is living and we say, "Oh, well, that's apparently the definition of cool or the definition of success." And you know, I'm, I'm, you know, that's what I got to do to be a player in the game. That's what I got to do to be part of the in group. And and I, and I think you have to start with what makes you come alive. I think you have to start with what actually thrills you. Uh, that's really the first battle to fight because when you start being true to what genuinely thrills you, you'll recognize your own weirdness at that level. You, you'll realize that what interests you, what thrills you, is very different from what interests and thrills other people. But if you're loyal to that, Mm -hmm. if you're faithful to your own curiosity, to what, what uniquely charges you up, then it'll be a lot easier to not compare yourself with other people because you'll be going down a path for which there is no template, for which there is no comparison. It's not that you'll be the best in the world at X, but you'll be the only person in the world that's even interested in X because you're so loyal to what Uniquely turns you on and fires you up. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, that makes all the sense of the world. I mean, so much so that I'm going
0: to steal it for a blog post that I'm going to write titled "There's No Template for Her Remarkable Life."
1: Yeah, you know, and, and and I think the people that are living those remarkable lives, they're not trying to chase after what someone else has already caught up with. They're they're not trying to be, you know um you know lebron james isn't trying to be the next michael jordan he's trying to be the incomparable person that he is right and, and the person who comes after him yeah. won't try to be the next him they'll try to be the next something else the, the the people that that we compare ourselves to and and who make us feel so bad about ourselves when we use them as the definition of success these people aren't trying to be a second rate version of anyone else these people are dialed into a unique vision that you would have to be them in order to see. And that's what you have to find for yourself. Yeah.
0: Wow, man, you are full of all sorts of poetic nuggets. This has been really, really awesome. Um, so I have two other questions yeah. for you. Uh, so this is a Ryan Holiday question that I realized that I'm going to steal for every interview because I thought it was really an interesting thing. He had this uh, post on, on Medium titled The One Question That Will Change Your Reading Life. And I thought, you know what? I should ask everybody yeah. to interview this. <laughs>
1: What's one book that changed your life? Oh, man. Um, The hardest thing about this is just picking one. Yeah, I know. Trust me. I have like 600 on my shelf, so I get it. I I, I have to overcome my my personal insecurity about ever repeating myself. There's a book that I talk about a lot, and anyone who knows me is going to feel like I'm being a broken record, but I'm going to go with metaphors we live by by George Lakoff Mm -hmm. and, um, I I forget his Mm co-author's name, Mark Johnson, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. And the premise of the book is is that it is not merely the case that language is metaphorical in nature, but that thought itself is metaphorical in nature. We do not merely speak in metaphors, but we also think in metaphors And the language that we use to describe the world reflects a way of thinking that actually alters the way that reality shows up for us. So um, language is not neutral. So so, so I'll give an example. He uses um, in his opening chapter what's called the argument as war metaphor. And he talks about how whenever we describe arguments, we use the language of, of warfare. So we say things like, she knocked down my argument, or he defended his position. I conceded her point. They're attacking my arguments, right? And, and then Lakoff invites you to ask yourself, how does it actually feel to be in an argument with someone? It, it feels like mm. a war, doesn't it? Now, if you look at the literal yeah. definition of an argument... The literal definition is simply a, a set of statements in which some of the statements known as premises purport to demonstrate the truth of one of the other statements known as a conclusion, or it is a conversation about such statements. But there's nothing about the definition of an argument that makes it necessary for us to experience it as a war. But how, why do we experience it as a war Because the linguistic and conceptual apparatus that we use to think about arguments and to talk about arguments is one that makes that necessary. So the metaphors that we use are, the metaphors that we think by are the metaphors that we live by because they shape and structure the experience itself. And so if you want to alter the way the world is showing up for you, you have an opportunity there to tinker with. The the metaphors that you use to talk about things and think about things. So, what happens to your experience of arguments if you look at them as a kind of dance, or you look at them as a kind of game? That's not just a sort of how do I put it? Um, it's it's not a word game. It's it's a it's a thought game. It's an experience game. And when you begin to experiment with different ways of talking and thinking, you open up new vistas of possibility in your own life. So that's a book that really delves into that. It's a very philosophical book because one of them is a philosopher of language, yeah. the other is a is a cognitive scientist, and, and and it gets a little heady at points. But and it's not even written as a self help uh-huh. book, but it's got a lot of implications for anyone that's interested in in personal development. Big impact on my life. That's a hell of a pitch
0: for a <laughs> book. Like you sold me <laughs> on it. Uh, like that's going to be next on my Amazon list. Uh, so I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews, with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is
1: that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What is it that makes someone unmistakable? The the willingness to own their mistakes as a part of their unique brilliance and beauty. Hmm. The recognition that Who you are is an unrepeatable phenomenon. That if you do not choose to step up and show up and become who you were born to be, it is not the case that someone will come along and take your place and get what's yours. But rather, there will be a hole in the universe that will never be filled because you're the only person that can bring to the table what you can bring. And to, to take ownership of the fact that there are people out there who may never become the full manifestation of all they can be if you don't take ownership of all that
0: you can be. Amazing. Um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us. Um, this has been really, uh, to me, this is one of those conversations I feel like you packed so much into 50 minutes that I will want to go back to, to replay this multiple times, just because I feel like there's a dozen blog posts I want to write. Uh, I think you've given us a lot to think about, which is always uh, one of my favorite conversations. Where can people find out more about you, your work and
1: everything that you're up to? Oh man. So you can check out Praxis at discoverpraxis.com, like discover as in discover a new world, dot com. That's the apprenticeship program that I'm an education director for. Me and my team, we constantly write blog posts, do podcasts and things like that. So I get a lot of content there. You can also check me out at fee.org. That's for the Foundation of Economic Education. Uh, I got a lot of articles and, and projects that are that are updated there as well. Uh, You can just do an author name search for me on the site. You can also check out my personal blog, TKColeman.com. I usually write short like Seth Godin-style blog posts at least once a week. Um, And I I give any updates for any of the things I have going on there. And you can follow me on Twitter, uh, which is at TK underscore Coleman.
0: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Did you know that every Sunday, our community manager, Melena sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes just like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit UnmistakableCreative.com slash newsletter, and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's UnmistakableCreative.com slash newsletter.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.